Good afternoon. It's Monday, the 29th of November 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish, and we're delighted to be joined by David Scott, bringing us northern exposure from north of the border. Well, we're going to get straight on with Omicron, of course. It's been given a name. Uh, last week, we thought it wasn't going to be given that name, but it's been given that name. Uh, and uh, well, we thought we would inspire everybody with a bit of Boris. The UK's plan against COVID has been working. We've had the fastest vaccine rollout in Europe and now the fastest booster campaign in Europe with almost 16.8 million boosters in people's arms. And though case numbers have remained relatively high, we're seeing falling hospitalizations and falling numbers of deaths. But on Wednesday, uh, we received news of a new variant, the so-called Omicron variant. And I want to express my deep gratitude to scientists in South Africa who identified this new variant and shared the information widely and immediately. It does appear that Omicron spreads very rapidly and can be spread between people who are double vaccinated. There is also a very extensive mutation which means it diverges quite significantly from previous configurations of the virus. And as a result, it might at least in part reduce the protection of our vaccines over time. So we need to take targeted and proportionate measures now as a precaution while we find out more. And first, we need to slow down the seeding of this variant in our country. We need to buy time for our scientists to understand exactly what we're dealing with and for us to get more people vaccinated and above all to get more people boosted. We will also go further in asking all of you to help contain the spread of this variant by tightening up the rules on face coverings in shops and on public transport. So no one would be terribly surprised at the response that has had. Uh, well, would you take advice from Pepper the pig is what it comes <clears throat> down to. He sounds like a pig. He gets lost in his speeches and becomes a, a children's cartoon character. And now he's the person who's going to advise us on uh, defences against uh, viruses. Uh, I don't think so. No, David, welcome to the programme. Um, what were your thoughts on that? And uh, I mean, surely Boris must know what he's talking about. I think it's yet more evidence, if indeed any more evidence were, were, were needed, uh, that the entire governmental um, uh, uh, policy and a narrative on COVID is in pieces. So just what did he say there? He defined working as the number of people jabbed. That's not the definition of working. Um, why is it, Boris, that the jabbed are twice as likely to die compared to the unjabbed for the last eight months? Uh, from ages 10 to 59 in uh, stats re released by your government. That's not the, the number of people jabbed is not the definition of working. He said that deaths are falling. That's a lie. Deaths are now, there, there are excess deaths now in the UK. Deaths are falling in other countries like Sweden. We'll come to that later. But that was, a, that was an outright lie. He maybe means deaths due to COVID, but that's not what he said. Um, he said um, he said that uh, that the new the new uh, variant might reduce the protection of vaccine over time. 
No, we've already established that the, the effectiveness of the, the vaccine diminishes rapidly uh, in, in a few months uh, to basically nothing. So we already know that, Boris. Are you looking to cover your tracks? And then he, he very nearly at the end said, we just need a little effort to flatten the curve. He did find other words because he would realise that people would have thrown, thrown things at the television. Um, so one of the things that he uh, obviously was saying was we've got to uh, protect the country. And the way that we do that is uh, is to make sure that anybody that's traveling into the country from new four new red list countries, uh, that those people uh, would uh, have to self-isolate and so on. Uh, and not only the people themselves, but any contacts that, 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 have, uh, that they've had. Um, <clears throat> now, Boris's uh, attitude to, to self-isolation means you self-isolate until... Uh, you've had a, a negative PCR test and you're required to have a negative PCR test uh, two days following return to the country. Uh, but, uh, well, Nicola's attitude is somewhat different, uh, David, and she is now saying, uh, she's saying that eight days, all UK arrivals, whether they test positive or negative, whatever way they test with a PCR test, uh, must uh, self-isolate for eight days uh, once they've arrived into Scotland. Uh, does that apply to people coming from England? We don't know yet. Uh, there have been um, suggestions that, that Nicola might try to close the border. Um, we'll see how that goes if she tries that one. Uh, badly would be my prediction. Um, but yes, remember, it's like uh, it's like VAT. It's just the same as England, only 20% worse. Uh, yes, indeed. Now, the question then is, how serious is this? Is it serious or is it not serious? Well, nobody seems to be able to agree on it. Uh, this is the evening standard. Uh, Omicron symptoms are extremely mild, says doctor uh, who covered it. Uh, and this was on the Andrew Marr show. So let's just have a look. The doctor who discovered Omicron says symptoms from the variant are extremely mild uh, and has accused the UK of panicking unnecessarily. Uh, the UK government announced the reintroduction of masks in shops and so on. Uh, Omicron first detected in Botswana has sparked alarm among scientists or fears. Uh, it could be more contagious than other variants uh, and resistant to vaccines. So, uh, but anyway, on the Andrew Marr uh, show yesterday morning, she's saying uh, not quite as severe as it seems to be. But David, uh, then we look at uh, Reuters, for example, a headline this morning, uh, Omicron poses very high global risk. Uh, world must prepare. Uh, according to the World Health Organization. So let's uh, just run through uh, what the uh, World Health Organization is in fact saying about this. Yes, so the World Health Organization, and we must remember that uh, this is where the policy is set, uh, or the people who influence it set the policy, it's not national governments. A global pandemic requires a global response, says the World Health Organization. So that's Boris putting his place. Um, they've issued a document yesterday, 28th November, 2021, enhancing readiness for Omicron technical brief and priority actions for member states. So uh, the summary here, um, uh, they, uh, they said it's been designated, variant B1.1.529 has been designated a variant of concern. There we go, uh, trademark. Um, it's highly divergent with a number of mutations. And there are some uncertainties. The uncertainties are, one, how transmissible it is, two, how well vaccines protect against infection, transmission, clinical disease of different degrees of severity and death, uh, 
And three, does the variant um, present with uh, a different severity profile? So we basically know nothing. And uh, so what do you do when you know nothing? Well, you do a risk assessment. So the World Health Organization has said, given mutations that may confer immune escape potential and possible possible and possibly transmittability advantage, the likelihood of further spread of Omicron uh, at the global level is high, depending on these characteristics. There could be future surges in COVID-19, uh, which could have severe consequences depending on a number of factors, including where the surges may take place. The overall global risk to the new VOC uh, variant of concern, Omicron, is assessed as very high. So there we go, from the World Health Organization, the risk is very high. This is a risk assessment. Um, more on this probably in extra time. I would have to say that, in short, this does not, this is not based on anything. It's not based on any data. It's not based on any statistics. It's based on belief. Right? This is a faith-based risk assessment. It's based on the belief of the person or the organization making the risk assessment, and that belief is influenced by their political ambitions uh, and their worldview. So unless we can find out who made the risk assessment and quiz them, we know nothing about anything, because that is entirely um, an assessment of the degree of fear that um, the person making the risk assessment uh, is, is, is exhibiting. Based on this very high risk assessment, they go on to identify priority actions for member states. So they're essentially instructing action here. Amongst those, vaccination, uh, where they mentioned despite uncertainties, it is reasonable to assume that currently available vaccines offer some protection against disease and death. So we don't know anything about the, the variant, but we're just going to assume the vaccines are okay. On we go. Um, we're going to have a risk-based approach. Remember, risk-based means belief-based approach to adjusting international travel measures. So don't be planning on going in any holidays abroad. Um, so they're going to uh, tighten up on that. And we're also going to have risk uh, communication and com community engagement because we need to take the public along with this. Brian, Mike, uh, one of the most... Um, so he says authorities should communicate information related to Omicron and potential implications for the public in a timely and transparent manner to further foster trust and increase acceptance of response measures. So there we right. go. They're, they're, they're instructing the, um, the nudge unit to get busy and change how people perceive this so they will believe the lies. And David, just to reinforce that point and stress that, of course, this is a global agenda. So coming out of the uh, World Health Organization, the United Nations, we're going to be having a look at that uh, psychological, political psychological approach in Belgium in just a few minutes. Um, so, David, uh, well, we seem to have uh, a little bit of cartoon here. Bob's cartoon here is... Um... Uh, again, uh, showing the difference between Britain of old and Britain with a new variant. We've gone from being a, a mighty lion to a little pussycat uh, in a cage. Um, and, and that is very true. We, at least at the political level, are running the fear, uh, running the, the caging of society one more time. Uh, it will be very interesting to see if anyone actually believes it. If the cartoon world is anything to go by, then people are very much catching on to what this is really about. The next cartoon uh, shows someone looking at a sign saying, War on COVID, you are here. 
and it is in fact the infinity loop. So it just goes round and round and round. Um, that seems very true. Uh, well, it absolutely, it absolutely does. Okay, let's uh, quickly move on then uh, to Switzerland. And uh, well, a number of the mainstream press uh, reporting this morning that Swiss voters have backed the new uh, COVID-19 law. Uh, this headline saying amid surge in infections, uh, early, so uh, they're saying early results show two thirds of voters uh, supported legislation to impose strict coronavirus restrictions. Um, they have uh, brought, they have backed legislation. Um, this the vote took place yesterday, uh, and uh, results from it, uh, sixteen of Switzerland's twenty six cantons showed sixty one point nine percent had voted in favour of the law uh, on a sixty four percent turnout. Um, so uh, there were many demonstrations expected. I'm not sure that uh, that it that uh, it that very many took place, uh, but nonetheless, uh, the, uh, the the COVID pass and various other uh, restrictions in Switzerland have gone through uh, 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 in any case. So let's uh, move on to the mail. Uh, and Australia stays closed. International border reopening is delayed after the emergence of uh, Omicron variant as uh, cases of uh, strain show, uh, grows to five, uh, but all are <laughs> showing no symptoms. So uh, this is very much, <clears throat> uh, this is David, very much the Australian approach. Uh, of zero COVID, uh, in this case, five cases, but zero symptoms. Zero symptoms, zero evidence, um, zero reason, um, maximum fear. Uh, indeed. Uh, this, this next slide, now, there are a number of heroes in this country. I think there's a growing number of heroes in this country. I was uh, looking at one lady who was uh, operating a, um, a cinema in Swansea, and refused to insist on uh, vaccine passports and checks for people coming into a cinema. She's a hero. And here's another hero. Uh, this, uh, this person has um, enhanced a COVID-19 vaccination centre sign. It now reads, experimental COVID-19 vaccination centre in trials until 2023. Test subjects this way. Whoever you are, God bless you. Uh, indeed. Uh, and that takes us, uh, Brian, to, to the... other signs, really, because, of course, oximeters and oxygen level signs have been used to diagnose people uh, with COVID and have had very serious consequences to how an individual is treated in hospital. And here we've got the mail headline that apparently thousands of ethnic minority patients who died of COVID could have survived because of the oxygen meters used in hospitals are less accurate on people with darker skin. Now, this is a wonderful bit of truth and spun story because the basics here are true. Um, but what they're really talking about is the fact that these little clips that go on the end of your fingers to uh, measure oxygen uh, are inaccurate. Uh, but the spin here, of course, is that this is a racial issue, as we're going to see. Uh, just to make sure we know what we're talking about, the National Lib Library of Medicine here is also commenting on the accuracy of six inexpensive pulse oximeters not cleared by the Food and Drug Administration. Now, for illustration, I've put some uh, adverts there top right of these things, which you can buy easily online. Uh, we're not saying that the three there are included in ones that don't work. We simply don't know. But the point is that these little devices, which you can buy um, 
from a supplier as a member of the public or can be used on you when you go into hospital. They are not accurate, and this has huge implications for how you're going to be treated. Uh, but let's have a look at Sajid Javid, because he said this, at the height of the COVID peak last winter, Black, Asian and other minority ethnic groups made up 28% of critical care emissions in England, about double their representation in the population as a whole. It's easy to look at a machine and assume that everyone's getting the same experience, but technologies are created and developed by people and so bias, however inadvertent, can be an issue here too. Now, let's remember what the basic problem is. These things are inaccurate for everybody, but it also appears that they can be less accurate on people that have got more colour in their skins. But for Sajid, this has clearly become a racial bias issue. Uh, but he goes on to say that he'll be cooperating with Xavier uh, Bakara, Joe Biden's health chief in the United States, to deliver new policies that would shape medicines across the globe. So we can't get to grip with the machinery we're using in the NHS. We can't uh, help people who've got COVID, but he's already thinking about how he's going to help people across the globe. This, um, David, I'm just going to say, this is, this is reframing. We've got people with huge egos. Um, they can't solve problems in this country, but they're going to solve the problems on a global scale. It is striking that Mr. Javid did not mention um, the variability in vitamin D levels uh, that, that happens summer to winter. And there's a big reason as to why seasonal flu is seasonal and obviously affects people who have darker skin more severely in northern climates. Um, why did he not mention that? I mean, there are physical differences between people that have that have medical effects and all that maybe they don't want to talk about that, but it's true. And that should be surely discussed. But what he's doing is he's focusing on something where he can claim bias. And it's again, it's playing into this um, stoke the division um, uh, and, and racialized language that seems to be everywhere in the UK at the moment, including inside the Conservative Party, it would seem. Indeed. Well, let's just remind ourselves as to who the Guardian is for pharma pharmaceutical products and devices. So if we just pop this one up on screen. And uh, who's the face we need to bring in? Well, of course, it's June Rain, the woman who at the moment cannot produce the um, statistics and data analysis showing that vaccines are safe. We've still not got no analysis on yellow card vaccine adverse reactions. Um, but uh, ultimately, she's the lady who's responsible for the fact we've got unsafe oximeters now um, uh, uh, circulating in the country. So if you want to focus, we need to focus on individuals like June Rain. And uh, what have we got here? COVID rules are blamed for 23% uh, dive in young children's development, David. Yes. So this is actually astonishing. Um, this is a, a, a study from States and Brown University uh, reported on, the on by the Mail. Uh, and we're showing this 23% reduction in cognitive development in children. Um, and uh, the Mail goes on to say uh, face masks and social distancing measures may in fact impede children's development. Uh, a new study executed at Brown University has found uh, the probe analysed cognitive development of the youngsters um, 
and, uh, and found this 23% drop. Uh, there's a couple of graphs here which are very striking. Uh, Non-verbal development quotient and verbal development quotient, and you see this dramatic reduction as you go into 2020-2021. So if we have, across the entire West, um, taken down... Uh, the development of children by 23% um, over the, 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 the response to COVID. And we know how we've discussed for, for two years now how illogical, ineffective, counterproductive and harmful that governmental response and unnecessary that governmental response has been. Uh, is, is, is a 23% reduction in, in the development of children enough to stop it? Is the increased death rate enough to stop it? What will it take before our wise overlords actually start to um, look at the signs? Uh, well, I think it, what it's going to take is, is for the general public to, to uh, respond in an appropriate way. But David, does the article give any indication uh, <clears throat> what it is that's actually causing this? Uh, I mean, uh, I think back, well, six, eight months now, there were quite a number of people saying, look, uh, if, if you require uh, young children to wear a face mask, uh, there is no visual cue, therefore, between uh, visual communication cue between those young children. This is, this is going to have a detrimental, de detrimental effect. Is that what we're seeing here? Yes, I think that is exactly what we're seeing. Uh, just to quote from the study here, it also found that similar dips in the same span with regards to the development of children's ability to communicate both verbally and through subtle facial clue clues. Um, speaking to primary school teachers, they find the, the, the masks that they're being forced to wear by the state as, as, as extremely harmful in their practice of educating children because the children need to see how the words are formed. They need to see what your lips are doing a lot of communication is through the face, but it's non-verbal. All of that is lost. And of course, the sheer isolation from, from people that's been going on will have its own detrimental effect. And here it's now measurable, 23% reduction in child development. It's appalling. Uh, yes. Okay, well, uh, uh, let's. we've got a bit of video here, David, if you'd like to introduce it, from the United States. Yes, now this is it's a film in the supermarket and um, initially um, uh, what was happening is a, a chap wearing a mask filmed a young girl because she wasn't wearing a mask and he, he felt she was a threat. Um, the father of that young girl objected and you could hear him getting quite angry that his, his minor, you know, a photograph was being taken of his young daughter. But you can, you can hear the tone change as he realises how utterly terrified the man who took the photograph is and how bizarre his behaviour is and how much he's being driven by fear. And eventually you'll hear the, the, the father say, this is, what, this is what our government's driven us to. Look at how terrified this man is. Um, it's uh, a, a good illustration of just the, the extent that fear has taken over in our countries. Hey guy, hey guy, tell me why you were taking pictures of me and my daughter. Excuse me. Why were you taking pictures of me and my daughter? I want to know. Please tell me. Just tell me and I'll leave you alone. If I can stay alive. Tell me and I'll leave you alone. Why were you taking pictures of my daughter? Tell me with your six masks. Can you just tell me? Well, I can stay alive, please. So you can stay alive? That's why you're taking pictures of my minor daughter? Can you please? 
He was taking pictures of me and my, my minor daughter. Can I no, because you, you, were, you felt brave taking pictures, but now you want to run. Tell me. Yeah, you look scared now, huh? Yeah, I yeah you're real brave now, aren't you? No, I'm... Oh, you're real brave with your 90 masks okay. on. Sorry about that. Here he is, everybody. Here is the man that took a picture of my minor daughter because he said he was scared because we did, she didn't have a mask on. Because she didn't have a mask on. So you, so you think it's okay to take pictures of my little girl? You think that's acceptable behavior, sir? I took a picture because you weren't wearing a mask. I deleted it. You know that. Sir, so leave me alone, please. You don't, you don't have to worry. I'm not going to do anything okay. stupid. Well, I appreciate that. Yes, yes. Thank you. I appreciate it. I appreciate it. Thank you, my man. This is incredible, guys. This is what they've done to our society. This is incredible. Dude, he's got like nine masks on. Here, here, we'll we'll make more room for you, man. That's like nine feet right there. You're free to go. No one's stopping you. Yeah, because you're, you 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 started this, man. If you didn't want this smoke, then you shouldn't have started it. You 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 didn't you didn't by look at look at how afraid he is of COVID, guys. Holy cow! Look at how frightened he is. You sure? So it's it's striking that here you see um, this man who was obviously causing a bit of trouble and reacting badly, and and but you can see how the even even the father of the girl there realized that he was a victim here. He was terrified, terrified of COVID, terrified of being near other people, terrified of going to the shops, simply paralyzed with fear at times. And um, that is what the, the, the government campaign of making people feel um, personally at risk has done. Uh, David, I'll just add to that and say that over the last few months, I've personally experienced somebody you know, jumping back, not taking a step back, but almost jumping backwards when you've tried to speak to them there. Uh, well, I won't describe their jobs in detail, but let's say they're local uh, public officials. You've tried to just have a conversation with them about the issue in hand, nothing to do with COVID, and that person jumps back away from you. So this is hev heavy psychological reframing, which we'll come on to a bit more in a minute. First of all, the subject is football. And over the last week in particular, uh, we've had a lot of emails and telephone calls from people saying, are we aware of what's happening in football, that footballers are collapsing on the pitch? And indeed, people are collapsing in the crowds. And regular viewers of uh, spectators of football are saying this is not normal. So we were interested in this Daily Mail headline that was sent through us. It says it's terrifying, but it's a coincidence. That's in capitals, coincidence in the capitals, so that you understand what the Daily Mail is saying. Leading cardiologist says footballers should not panic after five high-profile collapses. 
but insists all players need to be checked throughout their 20s and 30s. So we've suddenly got people collapsing on the pitch. Uh, the spectators are noting, noticing this and people who've watched football for 20, 30 and more years are saying, we've never seen anything like this before. I understand that FIFA's talking about 108 uh, footballers who've had problems, but nobody wants to talk about whether this is actually connected to the vaccination programme. Now, I was also sent uh, an email with a, a link through to a video clip. Uh, this was just one of the many people who've picked up on this particular issue. Uh, this took me through to this uh, uh, channel uh, where they were talking about Trevor Sinclair being cut off uh, for asking questions. And I think, David, you've got a bit more to say on this in a minute. Um, but also the embedded headline in the video was scientists reject pundits vaccine theory after third footballer collapses in a week. So we have no scientific evidence as to what's actually happening. Uh, but apparently, if you bring up the, the uh, possible concept that this is as a result of vaccination, then, uh, well, it's conspiracy theory and they don't want to talk to you. Um, so, David, uh, let's talk about John Fleck then. Yeah, so John Fleck, Sheffield United midfielder, uh, was one of the footballers who've collapsed on the pitch. And this, this is incidentally affecting basketball, badminton, all sorts of different sports, tennis. Uh, you can find clips of all of, all of uh, sportsmen from all of these fields uh, collapsing. Uh, the Independent continues, uh, Fleck went down off the ball just after the hour mark uh, and his teammates quickly called for medical support. The Scotsman was given oxygen and after a 10-minute delay was taken off on a stretcher and out of the ground to a waiting ambulance. After the game, uh, the Blades boss, you and Djokanovic uh, said, John is conscious and he is in hospital and he is talking with the doctors and he's, he is in good hands. We hope everything will be okay and expect everything will be fine. Uh, he was talking and asked for the result. I really didn't see the incident. It looked like he just collapsed without any physical contact around him. And, and this is the pattern. This is what's happening um, in much higher numbers than anyone could ever remember before. It used to be almost unknown, but now we're seeing multiple footballers and other sportsmen and women collapse uh, uh, on, on the field of play um, without anybody around them, without any reason apparently for it. Uh, and on uh, uh, Talk Sport Radio, um, someone did try to ask the question. We have a short clip here of what happened. Simon, what can expect uh, at this time? I think everyone wants to know if he's had the COVID vaccine. So there you go. Everyone wants to know if he's had the COVID vac, and off it was cut. You're not allowed to ask the question. This is um, obviously contrary to any any journalistic or indeed scientific inquiry. You're not allowed to think the thought. You're not allowed to ask the question. Why ever would that be? Um, now, both of you uh, must remember uh, two, three weeks ago, uh, the BBC began running a campaign about uh, the undiagnosed heart, uh, heart conditions that, that are existing amongst our young people, uh, both professional and also younger people. Uh, and uh, that's just a coincidence, though, David. Everything's just a coincidence. It's a world of coincidence. Coincidence and risk assessments based on no statistics. Um, but to look at some statistics, we have here, uh, courtesy of Ivor Cummings, 
and Michael Levitt. Uh, some figures from Sweden. Uh, Sweden total deaths. Uh, the, the, the green line is under 65 and the red line is over 65. The dotted line is the expected deaths and the hard line is the actual ones. And we see that for um, under 65, death rate's been normal. For the over 65, Swedes have been dying less quickly than we would have expected um, since, what's that? July um, 2021. So um, we've now got several, several months where the, the death rate in Sweden is, is lower um, than historically would be anticipated. Um, that's not happening here. With all of the um, uh, success that Boris was uh, claiming at the start of the programme, everything's working, we've got more boosters in people's arms. Uh, we reported this last week, I just want to come back to it quickly. Vaccinated English adults under 60 are dying at twice the rate of, the un of unvaccinated people of the same age. And quickly again to look at the graph showing that data, that's been happening uh, for some eight months. And this is now a huge and unexplained and in the mainstream media unreported uh, feature of uh, the, the health environment in the UK. And it does seem to be related to the vaccine, but no one will talk about it. Um, well, this is a very good question. And uh, just remind everybody that um, the Office for National Statistics is showing uh, each week now, uh, the, the numbers of people that are being uh, that are dying uh, attributed to COVID nineteen, <clears throat> and those that are dying uh, attributed for other reasons, and it's about fifty fifty, and no explanation from anybody as to why that is. Yeah. So and, and of course not fact checked. <laughs> well, indeed. All right. So a big thank you to a viewer that sent us some very interesting information. Uh, came in with an email. Uh, Hi, Brian, thought you might like to see this leaked document from the GEMS Management Strategy Expert Group, who are the team advising the Belgian government. Especially interesting is Annex 2, brackets, recommendations for motivational communication. Uh, that fits in very nicely with what you've been talking about, David. This shows the lengths they will go to in order to keep the population under their control. Absolutely disgraceful. Thank you, Mike and the team, for the excellent work you're doing. Regards. So I've just taken a little bit about out of the document. Uh, so this is it. It's about advice um, to the Belgian government around uh, corona, coronavirus. Um, this has got thanks to a lot of uh, various named people who have presumably contributed to the uh, report. And if we go to Annex 2 here, we've got the area highlighted that the individual was commenting on. So this is Annex 2, Recommendations for Motivational Communication. Invest in visual communication that provides a concrete insight into the, in the beneficial impact of one's own behavior, keeping distance, wearing a mask. This requires sustained effort so that people develop a realistic insight into how quickly the virus circulates in a given situation. So no fact there, this is just getting into people's minds what they think is going on. If we, uh, if we uh, go down to two now, develop, a, uh, develop and communicate a clear, coherent and long-term winter plan. Create a sense of predictability, indicate critical thresholds. 
emphasize that only a combination of various, various safety measures allow for a safe situation. Make clear when the rollout of a booster vaccine can be expected. All of this is applied psychology based on questionable or non-existent science. And of course, we saw Britain leading this nonsense through the Behavioural Insights team, uh, working directly with the Cabinet Office. But it goes on. Uh, so learn the population to think in terms of probability rather than in binary terms. That, of course, should be teach the population. That's just a little mistake in the translation. Learn the population to think in terms of probabilities rather than in binary terms. The probability of infection after vaccine, after a booster vaccine or after entering with a COVID pass is reduced, but not reduced to zero. Abolish the term COVID safe ticket. It creates a false impression that a COVID safe ticket allows one to have close contacts, hug each other and shake hands. Uh, systematically use the term COVID pass instead. So everything being controlled uh, uh, um, around us as to what we're told, what the meaning is. Here, communicate ongoingly and explicitly about the effectiveness of vaccination, indicating daily COVID figures, the probability of being hospitalised or ending up in intensive care under conditions of vaccination versus lack of. So applied psychology to enforce um, an idea as to what's happening with no underlying data. Uh, on we go, show projections of what the current situation may look like in an intensive care uh, ward without large-scale vaccination, or what it might look like in the future if the population refuses a booster vaccine. So this is more scare tactics. Share testimonials from vaccine-critical individuals who decided after being hospitalised to accept the vac vaccine anyway. The motivating impact of like-minded people is greater to convince non-vaccinated persons to get vaccinated. And here, make it concretely, graphically clear that vaccination remains, uh, sorry, remains of added value, even if one was previously infected. So David, uh, you have no full statistical data on the benefits versus risks of the uh, vaccines. We have no analysis of the yellow card or the bears vaccine adverse effects data. And based on that pile of nonsense, we then use applied political psychology to get the population to believe what the government wants us to believe. This is vicious and very dangerous policy. This is using fear to control the public. It's quite blatant now. We're not, um, we're not addressing any of the issues, right? We've known for some time uh, AstraZeneca, we reported on this months ago, put in their official documentation that they recognised that, that the outcomes from adverse effects from their vaccine included death. And we asked MHRA, where was the risk assessment to show, since, since we, we now knew we were killing people, it was now admitted we were killing people, where's the risk assessment to show this is overall beneficial? We're still waiting on a reply. And we tried Health England, Health Scotland, all sorts of departments, department heads, ministers, no reply. Um, we've now got uh, the cardi cardiologists in America found the same thing. We've got statistics from British organisations finding the same thing. And yet it goes on as though none of the reality exists. 
It's just a case of how do you control perceptions? Um, you mentioned their projections, computer modeling again. Here's a, here's a scary projection. This says you're all going to die. You must do this. Doesn't mean it's real, but it frightens people and they know it works. Look how frightened that man in the supermarket was. Yeah. Thank okay, you, David. <clears throat> Thank you, David. Right. Now let's uh, move on to uh, this, the police and crime bill. Um, and uh, well, this tweet from Big Brother Watch, a few days old now, uh, the government's policing bill creates a new public nuisance offence. Uh, the offence includes where an individual risks causing another person to suffer, quotes, disease. This will be used to arbitrarily arrest protesters and violate civil liberties. Uh, it must be removed from the bill. So the bill, of course, going through the committee stages uh, and uh, the various amendments being added to it. So let's just have a look at what the actual text says. And uh, so we're looking at section 61 here, intentionally or recklessly causing public nuisance. And if we look at uh, section two, um, <clears throat> for the purposes of subsection one, an act or omission causes serious harm to a person if, as a result, the person suffers death, personal injury, or disease. Uh, David, what are your thoughts on that? Um, that is extremely frightening. I mean, given the amount of lies we've, we've, we've dealt with um, over the, the, the COVID crisis, given the amount of over government overreaction, if we're now criminalising or well, anything, criminalising being out in public if you're not vaccinated, criminalising anything that, the, that the, the state may define as uh, necessary for, as contrary to, to, to their health provisions, uh, this is just another way for them to act against you and remove your rights. I find this uh, deeply threatening and troubling. Uh, my, my question would be, though, um, how could they possibly prove such a thing? Well, I don't know. Probability, belief. Um, it, it, if we have a situation where um, there's enough um, con and there's enough belief that simply to be unvaccinated is to be a threat, that would in effect criminalise being unvaccinated. The the degree to which the courts will be our safeguard is very substantial. The degree to which uh, juries, if they're ever allowed near any of this, will be our safeguard is even more substantial. Um, but remember how these things work, Mike. Um, the court system is very slow. Uh, people are seized, people can be locked up, people can have their lives wrecked for months and months and months before the charges are mysteriously dropped um, or before there's a, the, the, the charges are dismissed by a court. Yeah. Uh, David, I think the other point we have to... Um raise here is of course the truth has no place in courts. Courts are not about uh, establishing what the truth is. Courts are simply about acting upon the evidence which is chosen to be placed in front of the court or in front of the jury. So I think this is one of the things that people need to remember and of course if you've ever been in a closed court such as a family court where the press and the public are simply not allowed in those star chambers, facts and evidence are irrelevant. Uh, children can be taken away from parents simply on what a social worker or other official says without any supporting evidence. So this is where it will head 
head to for this particular bill? Yes, ultimately, in those circumstances, the courts define the reality. They define truth. Uh, they define the facts. Um, and we've seen all too many cases where the actual facts are com the complete reverse. But then once the courts have defined the facts in one way, the whole state apparatus, police, the whole, the whole apparatus of coercion, uh, obediently um, piles in and enforces the court's decision. The bottom line here is that this uh, bill needs to be stopped. Okay, now if you like what the UK column does, you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community. There are options to help us there. And if you are watching the UK column for free, uh, we do need your support. So uh, please do join us if you possibly can. And uh, uh, if you want to share our material on the various platforms as well, that'd be very much appreciated. Um, final, or well, another reminder and uh, another thank you from us uh, for everybody that's uh, grabbed hold of uh, UK Column Hoodie. Because they're exceptionally good. Well, what more can I say? <laughs> uh, they, they are warm and do the job, so that's really good. Um, okay, David, uh, moving north of the border, uh, Craig Murray is uh, being released tomorrow. Uh, this is uh, Canberra for Assange saying, hope, uh, hope many are there to cheer him as he walks out of the gates. Um, just uh, briefly remind everybody why he's been in prison. Uh, Craig Murray was in prison for, for contempt of court, uh, allegedly for the piecemeal jigsaw identification of some of the people who accused Alex Salmond um, of, um, of sexual assault. Uh, these charges all been uh, dismissed by a jury. Um, the... Uh, the alternative view, the view I subscribe to, is uh, he was reporting the case um, diligently and well, but was speaking about things that uh, the powers that be in Scotland did not want to be made public knowledge. Specifically, that all of the accusers came from a small politically connected coterie around Nicola Sturgeon. Uh, that particular fact, um, and I point out at this, at this juncture, I have no idea who any of these people were, um, but that fact reported um, uh, by Craig Murray put an, an entirely different light into the, on, onto the prosecution uh, of Alex Salmond, and it made it look ever more like a political witch trial. Um, the, the hounding of Alex Salmond in this way was extremely concerning um, because it did suggest that both the Crown Office and the police uh, were acting as agents of uh, the government uh, to re remove a political opponent. Uh, this is obviously uh, reminiscent of Stalinist either Soviet Russia and uh, various tin pot dictatorships. And at the time, comments along those lines were being made in the main mainstream media in Scotland. Um, the best of the analysis, however, came from people who were supporters of independence and inside the SNP world, as Craig Murray is. Um, and it was from these insiders that we got a genuine understanding of what was going on behind the scenes. And it was very concerning in terms of the corruption of the entire Scottish state. This is what he reported on. This, I believe, is why he's in jail. Um, he didn't do anything that I regard as criminal. And um, it is very good to see him being released.
Uh, yes, indeed. Okay, where does that take us, Brian? Well, it takes us to this astonishing headline. Thank you very much for the person who sent this in to us. It's from I. It says families in Cornwall offered £1,200 to take relatives out of NHS hospitals to free up space as the crisis deepens. And apparently this is money. The money for the grants is provided by the government's National Hospital Discharge Programme, which was launched last year and is available to all NHS trusts in partnership with charities. Now, um, the situation in Cornwall particularly uh, bad, and this issue has come up with the Colonel Kerno Healthcare Trust, um, but it's seemed to me quite uh, ironic that on one hand, we've got no money for proper healthcare, but we have got money to take people out of healthcare, even though their need at a particular time is very small. Now, I just want to also highlight the fact that we have been majoring in on what's been happening to people at end of life, and we've focused in on some documentation. This was local government end of life care guide for councils. This was the NHS fast track pathway tool. And uh, we also pointed out that the British Psychological Society heavily involved in order to uh, um, change how people think about end of life care and how they deal with a speeded up end of life for their relatives. So the applied psychology coming in thick and fast. Uh, we'd highlighted midazolam being used in vast amounts now in UK and the government resupplying that uh, drug. And we'd also asked for people who'd experienced problems with end of life programs and particularly where they were seeing a combination of midazolam and morphine being used that we we wanted to know more information. Now, we have been getting more emails in, but I, I want to say that we've also been getting some challenges from NHS staff working on end-of-life care, some very, very good and informative emails. And essentially, those people are saying, well, uh, we have worked in this field for many years and have seen uh, very good work done with people who are uh, in a situation of end-of-life. Um, however, what is particularly interesting for the UK column is these individuals are recognising that the procedures for end-of-life care in the NHS are being changed and are being applied in a different way to deal with people end-of-life through COVID. So please keep the information coming in. Uh, this was one of the uh, emails that we've received. I've just watched Friday's UK column and feel I must contact you. My husband developed a nasty flu about three weeks ago. I tried everything I could to help him through it. But when his breathing rapidly declined and his blood oxygen levels dropped, I bought an oximeter at the beginning of all this madness. I knew that I needed professional help, so dialed 9 and 9. And if there was any other choice, I would have taken it. Before the ambulance arrived, my husband said he knows if he gets taken in it would be curtains but he knew there was no other choice at that time i packed a few bits including his mobile phone so that we could communicate after an hour of arriving at the hospital he was put in a side uh, room he managed to ring briefly to say that he'd uh, had a covid label put on him and uh, he said he'd been asked at least 20 times why he hadn't been vaccinated uh, he was then taken to a coronary care unit and put on a high airflow mask with a break now and again, he did not seem to be improving. I rang as often as I could for updates. He was in the CCU for three days. Then I had a phone call saying that he was deteriorating, was being transferred to ICU. They put an oxygen hood on him. And um, 
the, the person says, I rang regularly, I spoke to the nurse, and the nurse then said that he was going to be put on midazolam. And essentially, the person said they tried to stop this happening. I have spoken to the individual concerned, and the main frustration is the lack of detailed knowledge about what was happening around the loved one in hospital. And this is a key theme of people being locked on towards where relatives cannot see them and cannot see what the actual medical treatment is. And this is where we have this uh, split in, in end, of, end of life care in the NHS. Uh, this one, I've been listening to your broadcast on Wednesday, and you mentioned the end of life care of midazolam and morphine. My mum passed away four weeks ago. She had emphysema and bowel cancer, as well as other medical issues. So she was a very poorly lady. It's probably unrelated, but I saw my mum in hospital two days before she died. She'd lost a lot of weight. She was on oxygen. When I saw her, she sat up and she was chatty and didn't look too bad. Two days later, she was dying and dead. She was not vaccinated for COVID. She did not have COVID. Uh, they claimed her bowel had perforated. So in this very tragic case, the relative is looking for answers as to what actually happened around the death. And now we're starting to see this very dark, confused situation in the NHS when people report what it is that's actually happened to their relatives in end of life. And the key issue coming forward is relatives cannot establish what medical treatment the relative is actually have, have, having, nor can they often get to see those relatives in their final days. Okay, David, uh, let's move north of the border and uh, Mr. Homza. Yes, this is this is one that's a, a little bit older story, but uh, I thought we, we would get to it um, because it, the nature of fascism, the nature of totalitarianism is for most people, most of the time, it doesn't matter. You, you go on, you live your life, it's not too bad. But if you cross the wrong person, if you cross a politically connected person, then woe betide you. So with, with that, I, I bring you to Hamza Yusuf. Uh, Hamza Yusuf and, uh, and his wife made a complaint against a Dundee nursery. Um, he made it through uh, a government agency, the Care Inspectorate, who upheld um, the uh, complaint. Um, it was related, he, he phoned up to get a place for his, his child. Uh, none were available. His wife phoned back, giving a Scottish sounding name, and apparently then there were places available. They felt this was... Um, an example of racism, um, and uh, the care inspectorate said we have in, inspectorate said we have upheld a complaint in relation to this matter. We found that the service did not promote fairness, equality, and respect when offering placements. Uh, however, um, the uh, the the nursery is not uh, backing down here. Their lawyer Levy McCray. Um, pointed out that the actual report from the Care Commission said nothing about any lack of equality and respect. Um, and um, it was only a complaint upheld in regard to fairness. Levy and McRae said the suggestion that the nursery acted in a discriminatory manner was false and defamatory. Um, Humza then doubled down. Humza's wife sues the Brotty Ferry Nursery for £30,000. Um, because, and, and using a, a politically connected lawyer, Amar Anwar from Glasgow, and um, 
So that's ongoing. The nursery itself is owned by uh, people of Asian descent, incidentally. So uh, although I don't think they're Muslim, I think they're perhaps um, a diff um, I think they're perhaps uh, uh, Hindu, but uh, they they're, they're actually not white Scottish. So uh, that that's a, a, another little wrinkle in this. Um, Case, um, the Times here, Yusuf is running a vendetta against us, claims the nursery. Staff at the nursery have been abroad in a feud with Scotland's health secretary over a place for his daughter. Said they cannot apologise for something they haven't done. And they've fallen victim to a vendetta. So this goes on. We will see what happens in that case. Um, but it is troubling that people in political power in Scotland are using that political power to use state agencies to... Uh, essentially target um, private businesses who do not do what they wish done. Um, we go on here, another Scottish story here. Um, this is relating to the ongoing um, uh, wars over, the term the turf wars, uh, over the LGBT and trans lobbies uh, fighting within, uh, within the LGBT movement. Uh, calls for Joanna Cherry to be expelled from the SNP after cons conversion therapy comments. More on conversion therapy and extra time, actually. There's some very worrying things going on in that field. Um, she was basically saying that there should be therapy given to people who um, have um, gender dysphoria, dys uh, dysphoria and they want to have talking therapies to try and work through this. This may be made illegal by the act that's being considered in Scotland. And uh, in, for saying things such as this, Miss um, Cherry was um, uh, attacked vehemently by the LGBT wing of the SNP. Um, on a similar uh, front, the Daily Mail here reports uh, Stonewall uh, brands lesbians as sexual racists for raising concerns about being pressured into having sex with transgender women who still have male genitals. If you thought it couldn't get any weirder, well, it can. Um, so uh, um, that's um, running along. Now, meanwhile, um, uh, sorry, sorry, it's a continuation just, of that story. Let's so, just read what's on screen, uh, uh, David, because this is a very interesting uh, story. It says, for many, it was a brave and long overdue airing of an important distressing subject painstaking investigation in claims that predatory trans women have been pressurising lesbians for sex. And that was published on a BBC News website. But a leaked email shows that the influential trans lobby group Stonewall attempted to suppress the investigation before it had even been published and made the extraordinary claim that the issues were equivalent to sexual racism. When I see that phrase, sexual racism, I'm smiling because they've obviously run out of newly constructed words to describe their perverse agenda. So we're now having to mix and match racism and sexual issues. I think they're in a bit of trouble there, David. They are. Now, Stonewall was um, essentially uh, uninvited from advising the BBC. The BBC backed out from having Stonewall because they're now seen as so toxic themselves that they're they're no longer uh, a, a favoured partner by organisations like this, like the BBC. But um, that's maybe more uh, apparent than real because they've replaced Stonewall with a diversity training scheme uh, that is Stonewall in all but name. 
concerned over the broadcasters partnership with Involve UK whose owner boasts online about being a proud ambassador of the LGB charity Stonewall. So we think uh, that we've got rid of Stonewall from the BBC but maybe not. Um, uh, the um, I made a, a revolt, there was a revolt from LGB staff um, over the move to end um, the diversity champion scheme that Stonewall was running. Tim Davey, the BBC's Director General, has now promised to begin an alternative partnership with the group called Involve UK. Um, uh, so John Haynes, chairman of the Common Sense Group of 50 Tory uh, MPs added, it's increasingly clear that Stonewall represents the worst of woke militancy. Organisations are beginning to wake up to that, although far too slowly. Many government departments are now dissociating themselves. For years, the far left has used front organisations to disguise, to disguise their intent. Frankly, the BBC should know that. I would suggest that the BBC is a front organisation for the left, and frankly, Sir John Hayes should know that, but there we go. Uh, well, and uh, David, I just, just, to, just to finish it, sorry, David, go. just to cut in, Sir John Hayes must know full well that far from distancing, government departments are climbing into bed with Stonewall and equivalent organisations. All the evidence is very clear that the government is thoroughly endorsing the woke agenda in every department. There's no distancing at all. And it, that includes the Tory party itself. And just to finish on this one, to show how ridiculous things are, Teesside woman, Teesside woman accused of exposing penis and using a sex toy and masturbating in public. Chloe Thompson, 41 from Middlesbrough, has pleaded not guilty to the three charges. I think that Articles like this and headlines like this are actually an attack on people's rationality. Uh, indeed. Because every time you see one and accept it, then you're surrendering a little bit of reason. Um, so let's surrender a little bit more then. <clears throat> this is the mirror this morning. Uh, RAF branded woke as it drops terms airmen and airwomen in favour of aviator. Um, <clears throat> because these are uh, not appropriate terms to be using anymore. And the main reason for this is because the Army has soldiers, the Royal Navy has sailors, uh, and therefore the Royal Air Force has aviators. Uh, but uh, the Conservative MP that's quoted here, uh, Patrick Mercer, uh, well, he described this as woke bollocks and uh, his words, not mine. Um, and I think that's uh, probably fair enough comment, uh, David. Yes, uh, this battle for language, more on that in extra time as well, but this battle for language is ongoing and is really hotting up. Okay, now let's uh, uh, stick with uh, the military here. And, uh, well, the future soldier, the future soldier has been announced. Uh, we covered a little bit of, uh, of the future soldier in recent weeks, um, but uh, an expeditionary army ready for the next uh, challenge, not the last, is uh, what... Uh, ben Wallace is talking about. Uh, so he was he was uh, explaining all about the future soldier to the uh, House of Commons yesterday. Uh, I'd like to update the House, he said, on the details uh, and implementation of the Armour's future capabilities, structure and basing. In March, I came to the House to announce the outcome of the Defence Command paper, part of our integrated review. I said we must adopt to new, adapt sorry, to new threats, resist sentimentality, and match our ambitions to our resources uh, if we are to field armed forces who remain uh, relevant and credible 
uh, for the challenges of the future. I also said that we owed it to our service personnel to ensure uh, we now turn policy into reality and work to, uh, to do so has only just begun. Um, so, um, uh, Brian, you'll be glad to know, you'll be glad to know that the future armor, army will be leaner but more productive. Uh, and uh, it's going to prioritize speed and resiness over mass and mobilization. Uh, it'll still be over 100,000 strong. Uh, and it will uh, integrate regulars and reserves, uh, as well as civil servants and partners from the private sector. Uh, as the chief of the general staff has said, it must be an army that places a premium not on mass, but on critical mass, relevant, uh, networked and deployable. Uh, crucially, it also has to be an army designed to, for genuine warfighting credibility. Uh, and try not to laugh too much. Uh, as an expeditionary fighting force uh, that will be both deployable and lethal when called upon to fight and win. Uh, and next, uh, it will be a key contributor to NATO warfighting capable of fielding divisions uh, throughout the decade as we uh, transition to the new capabilities for a fully modernised warfighting division by 2030. Uh, Scotland, uh, David, you'll be glad to know, will be home to more battalions going from six to seven units uh, and a greater proportion of the army than today. Uh, in practical terms, this amounts to additional 500 regular, regular personnel from 72,500 to 73,000. So that's fantastic, but don't worry. Uh, because we're getting rid of the Royal Marines and replacing them with the Ranger Force and they get a new cap badge. Uh, and there it is on screen. We should be extremely proud. So this is the Americanization. This is the corporatization of the British Army. We got rid of the, uh, the regiment system in order to uh, uh, break down the willingness of, of men who knew each other to fight. And now we're going to break down the SAS and the SBS and give them a, uh, a ranger title so that uh, their actual role is diluted. But I just wanted to jump back on what, what, what you were saying in that word suit description. The British Army, there isn't a British Army because it's only capable of fielding one division. And uh, we need to recognise that if we're talking armies, we need to be talking about approximately 200,000 men. Well, no, one division is not an army, it's a division. And of course, leaner means that the army is simply wasting away in this system. So the word soup is to cover the reality that the military is being dissolved. And what are we getting instead is this corporatized ranger system uh, for what I think is, is the global military force. Uh, and David, the bit that uh, really grabs me about this, uh, we've been talking about it for quite a while now, is this merging between military and civilian as if it's something that's perfectly normal? Indeed, uh, this um, you know you're talking about the the essentially destruction of the British Army. Uh, I wonder is that what General Sunit Carter uh, meant when he said that in his eight years as British military chief, he had to contend with some of the most dramatic changes that have ever taken place in modern warfare. So. First World War, Second World War, the transition from the Saltworth Camel to the Jet Age aside, maybe maybe he means that uh, we've never actually taken apart our own armed forces before. Uh, I think that's exactly what he means. Yeah. 
Well, let's move on to the subject of immigration and migration, which we know is, is a, a very emotive subject for many people in UK. And of course, last week in particular, all of the, the newspapers were full of headlines about migration. Uh, we've just chosen the mail here. Uh, this had a French spin to it. So the French presidential hopeful um, uh, Michael Barnier vows to tear up border treaty with Britain and let all migrants travel to the UK um, after a bust up with Boris over tragedy that killed uh, 27. Um, so we've got the immigration topic, but it's spun back onto the French. We could go in a different direction. Here's the independent, how Biden's border plans went from hopeful to chaotic. This gives us a better indication that migration and immigration is not just a UK problem, it's a worldwide problem. And uh, if we bring in some comment from a viewer, uh, first of all, they commented on Australia and essentially asked why the Queen wasn't asking questions about uh, Australia, um, place which she loves apparently, turning into a police state. I thought that was a good question. Uh, then the individual said, heard somewhere that Melbourne was part of a smart city club run by a think tank in London. Well, I don't know about that, but it was the second part that caught my eye. It says, several years ago, Mrs May secretly signed Britain up to the UN Migration Compact. Nigel Farage at the time had a Sunday show on LBC, and I made sure he knew. Silence then and since from the great man. Controlled media will not mention migration or, or that compact. Seems to be some sort of national secret. If migrants have been given rights to live wherever they wish, it might explain why they cannot be stopped or deported. So some questions there really from uh, that particular individual, but it was focusing in on the right area. Here's uh, the United Nations from the 10th of December, 2018, Marrakesh. Governments adopt global migration pact to help prevent suffering and chaos. So the UN doing what it does best, advertising itself as a loving, caring organization. Uh, this is some of the comments in that article from the Secretary General of the UN. The Global Compact for Migration provides a platform for, quote, humane, sensible, mutually beneficial action resting on two simple ideas. Firstly, that migration has always been with us. Uh, but should be managed and safe. Second, that national policies are far more likely to succeed with international cooperation. Uh, he goes on to say there's been many falsehoods uttered about the agreement and the overall issue of migration. In order to dispel the myths, the compact does not allow the UN to impose migration policies on member states, and neither was the pact a formal treaty. Uh, moreover, it's not legally binding. It is a framework for international cooperation rooted in an intergovernmental process of negotiation in good faith. The pact would not give migrants rights to go anywhere, reaffirming only the fundamental human rights. Uh, but he challenged the myth that developed countries no longer need migrant labour. It is clear that most uh, need migrants across a broad spectrum of vital roles. So they haven't really agreed anything, Mike, in the background. They've had a nice little chat with all these companies. They've agreed a policy. Um, they don't really tell us what that policy is, but not to worry, because if you don't, you don't agree with it, you don't adhere to it. So this is smoke and mirrors language. So let's drill in 
to what's really driving the UN. And let's bring this gentleman up on screen. Now, this is uh, Peter Sutherland. He died a couple of years ago. Uh, he's labelled here by Breitbart as the mass migration advocate and uh, the father of globalisation. They point out that he was a key player on a host of globalist bodies and multinational corporations, including the European Commission, the World Trade Organization and Goldman Sachs. Always good to have a banker. And uh, what he had to say in his uh, position as UN Special Representative for Migration, this is what he said in 2012, the European Union should be doing its best to, quote, undermine the sense of national homogeneity in Britain and Europe in order to pave the way for multicultural states. So it doesn't take us long to actually work out that the smokescreen of the language that uh, came out in 2018 is really an attempt to cover the true agenda of the UN, which is to stoke up mass migration wherever it can uh, in order to break down nation states. And it's quite clear as we watch the, the uh, misery and the suffering both of the migrants themselves and the countries which suffer from where they where they have an overwhelming influx of people, that these are very, very cold, callous individuals. And just before I give the next bit, David, it doesn't take much research to see what the real policy agenda is over immigration. It is to break down the nation state, whether it's Britain or America or France or any of the other established European countries? Yes, it's, it's to destroy the nation. Um, the, the, there's never been a case where large influxes, influxes of people does not end up in uh, internal conflict and um, such a change to, to the nation that it, it no longer has any coherency. And that's the plan, of course. Uh, the nation state is is down to go. It's to be one world government, and it's to be um, uh, a, a situation where any boundaries are viewed as being unfair, unreasonable, and wrong. Those boundaries, be they around the family, be they around the country, um, or uh, be they around uh, your individual belief, and no boundaries will be permitted. And if you dare to challenge the policy, of course, you, you are going to be branded a racist. You're going to be called extremist, right wing, deeply unpleasant. So this is a pretty vicious psychological operation as well. Um, how has the UK column dealt with this subject? Well, I'd like to jump back to about 2010 uh, when I had the opportunity to give a talk up in the Midlands. And uh, during that talk, uh, I was asked a question. Uh, you didn't mention all the migrants. And this is how the conversation went between myself and the audience. Uh, well, no, I didn't. Why are you concerned about those migrants? Uh, the audience, too effing right, the country is being swamped. Okay, how did they get here? The audience, silence. How did they get here? Audience, silence. How did they get here? Did they fight their way ashore? And then from the audience came the voice which said, no, we let them in. And I was intrigued because I hadn't met the person who let them in. So I said, what, you let them in? Audience, I effing didn't let them in. So who let them in? 
the audience, the politicians let them in. So I asked a question, who's your enemy, the invited immigrants or the politicians who opened the gates? And I'm very pleased to say that for the next uh, half an hour, we had a very amicable uh, discussion about how the country had been betrayed by its own politicians. And by focusing on the immigrants, of course, we let those politicians off the hook. Um, but uh, any comments you've got on that, David, uh, please come back. No, I think it's a very interesting exchange and it, it, it shows the one of the issues that's necessary is to treat people, to treat individuals as individuals and treat them with compassion, even though they might have been uh, used by others um, to uh, engage in a, 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 a process that's entirely detrimental. The same would apply to people who are terrified by COVID. Um, they might be acting in ways which are completely against our ancient rights and liberties, but we have to remember that they are frightened, they are lied to, and treat them with a bit of compassion uh, as we interact with them. Um, and uh, I think it would be very good to engage in a in a discussion, uh, a longer format discussion, uh, over perhaps weeks and years, about how we go about uh, finding a way forward, uh, given the the situation in the country now, the number of immigrants that have come in. Uh, the community um, separation that has happened in some parts of the country and what we actually do about it. Because having uh, an ability to discuss across boundaries, um, having a, an ability to um, reach out to people who have different points of view is uh, very necessary. Yes. Okay, David, thank you very much for that. Well, I think, think we're about out of time on this one. So... Uh, we just thought we'd end with a little graphic uh, to keep people on their toes. And of course, this was uh, a little graphic from Patrick Henningsen. So let's uh, uh, bring him on. The new variant, of course, uh, very dangerous to everyone. Uh, but of course, what have a few people noticed? Well, the next slide shows it all. Uh, Omicron. Well, Omicron, moronic, behaving in the manner of a moron, idiotic, stupid. So we've got Alpha, Delta, Omicron, and uh, you've been fooled com, which I think sums it up. So I think that people are picking up very clearly that if we've got an oaf and an idiot for a prime minister uh, warning us about a new variant, people are seeing very quickly uh, through this scam. I think we should leave it there. David, thank you very much for joining us. Great to have you back. Mike, thank you for the uh, positive comments in the uh, chat box. And we're pleased to say we are going to have an extra time today. So those who are UK column uh, members will see us shortly. Uh, to the rest of our audience, thank you very much for joining us. We'll be back at the same time on Wednesday. Bye-bye.